Section 19 of An Explorer in the Air Service. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Asterix. An Explorer in the Air Service by Hiram Bingham. Section 19. Should the General Staff control the Air Service? The wisdom of a General Staff must always depend on two things. First, the practical experience in the field of the officers composing it, and second, their studies of the accumulated wisdom gained in previous wars. In the American Air Service in 1917-18, we received no help from anything of this kind. While probably every officer of the general staff had had practical experience in handling infantry, in the care of cavalry, in the use of artillery, or in the building of roads and bridges, not one of them knew the nervous fatigue of piloting an airplane, or how it feels to have engine failure over wooded hilly country, or the difficulties of aerial observation when the air is blowing by at a hundred miles an hour. They had been able to assimilate the wisdom of centuries regarding the requirements of a foot soldier, what food, clothing, and discipline best met his needs. They had been able similarly to secure centuries of experience with mounted soldiers and knew the needs of cavalry, but they had no experience to guide them in making adequate rules for the care, training, and discipline of aviators or aviation mechanics. The science of aeronautics and the art of flying were too recent to have received the attention they deserved from the older and wiser heads on the general staff. When I went on duty in Washington in May 1917, I took it for granted that the War Department had carefully considered how to utilize an air service to the fullest extent. It was amazing and very disconcerting to learn that the General Staff of the Army had apparently made no plans for the part which aviation was to take in the war. The program of studies outlined for the first officers' training camps contained no reference to the air service. The War College had published some useful pamphlets, copied from the French and British, on cooperation with artillery. Yet, so far as I could discover, no effort was made to teach our thousands of new officers anything about the progress that aviation had made on the Western Front during 1916, nor what they might expect the air service to do, nor how to communicate with airplanes by ground panels, nor what the proper function of the air service was. The newspapers at that time were full of exciting stories of the aerial combats and victories of the Lafayette squadron. From what I could learn by conversation with our line officers, these aerial combats constituted the spectacular and bombing planes the useful end of the air service. Observation squadrons and liaison with artillery and infantry were practically unknown to the average line officer. It is hardly necessary to say that there was equal unpreparedness in many other branches of the service. Still, 
it must never cease to be a source of amazement to our descendants that while the great nations of the world had been fighting for their lives for two years and a half and ordinary common sense would have seemed to have dictated the necessity of preparing for the day when we too should get thrown into the gigantic conflict so little should have been done of what is known as general staff work we did not know until we had been at war for several months what kind of airplanes we were going to use how many we should need how many flying schools we were going to have where they were to be what were the best locations what system of training was to be followed or how many men we were to train so little thought had been given to the matter and so small had been our conception of the probable number of pilots that for several months after we entered the war the bulletins of the war department referred to in an earlier chapter offered commissions as first lieutenants to those who could pass the examinations for reserve military aviator the law provided an increase in grade to those who could pass the more severe tests of junior military aviator as it seemed obvious that no one should be sent to the front who was not a fully and completely trained military aviator many of our ambitious young pilots believed that by the time they were ready to fly over the lines they would rank as captains when the provision for granting increased rank and pay to aviators was passed by congress it was thought necessary to offer these inducements on account of the extreme danger of the service and the high mortality among the best known aviators in this country during the years nineteen ten to nineteen twelve it was felt that any one who was willing to undertake this dangerous training ought to be specially rewarded as long as we had an air service consisting of one flying school and a small assortment of experimental airplanes a few of which could fly a short distance the provision was undoubtedly wise but when we were faced with the necessity of having several hundred pilots and the probability of having several thousand it might have been foreseen by an adequately prepared general staff that the bulletins inviting young men to enter the air service should not make it appear that it was our plan to flood the air service with captains only central american armies are supposed to have an excess of rank at the top most of the aviators in the french service were non-coms although they enjoyed the social privileges of officers many of the aviators in the german air service were non-commissioned officers although the observers were nearly always officers in the british air service practically all pilots were commissioned officers and it was felt that the splendid morale of the royal flying corps and the remarkable record which its pilots had made on the western front in nineteen sixteen were due largely to this fact the american air service adopted the last plan general pershing however soon came to the belief that the rank of second lieutenant was high enough for most of his pilots yet until october nineteen seventeen there was no provision by law for second lieutenants in the signal corps consequently the tens of thousands of young men whose applications poured in during the first six months of the war had every right to believe that when they passed their tests they would become first lieutenants most of them furthermore 
naturally expected to be able before long to pass the junior military aviator test and become captains the fact is that the exigencies of the service and general pershing's refusal to permit any except regular officers of the permanent establishment to take the junior military aviator test resulted as has been pointed out in great disappointment and much loss of morale among what had been the most enthusiastic and keenest group of young men in the army logically of course it was not to be expected that our squadrons would be composed chiefly of captains it would have been bad for the rest of the army and bad for the men themselves had such an event occurred in fact it was so obviously ridiculous that it became all the more regrettable and almost inexplicable that the war department should have for so many months offered first lieutenancies to all those who could pass the easy reserve military aviator test perhaps it is true that this is only one of the many instances in which our persistent refusal to prepare for war led us into making serious blunders but there was none which caused more unhappiness or greater loss of esprit de corps the situation as far as it concerns extra flying pay is quite different the statement is frequently made by old army officers that in time of war aviation is no more dangerous than any other branch of the service there was a strong effort on the part of general pershing and the general staff to persuade congress of this during the early part of nineteen eighteen and to alter the law so that military aviators would not receive an increase either in pay or grade the military affairs committee of the senate refused to consider the proposal but general pershing achieved his purpose so far as france was concerned by refusing to permit any reserve or temporary officer to take the examination for junior military aviator for many months he also refused to issue the orders necessary to place pilots on flying duty thereby preventing them from getting even the twenty five per cent increase in pay that was permitted to reserve military aviators later on this was changed although with evident reluctance since the grade of junior military aviator carried with it an increase in pay of fifty per cent and the grade of military aviator attainable after three years as a junior military aviator or for distinguished service at the front carried an increase in pay of seventy five per cent there was naturally a great deal of resentment felt by the pilots who were doing the most flying against the relatively few regular officers whose administrative duties prevented them from flying more than just enough to warrant them in drawing their flying pay but who through their grade as junior military aviator or military aviator were paid two or three times as much for the small risks they ran as were the ordinary pilots who were taking their lives in their hands every day had general pershing and the general staff contented themselves with asking that the law be changed regarding the increase in rank and explained the disadvantages of having too many high-ranking young pilots there would probably have been no objections raised 
but when the military affairs committee learned from foreign flying officers on duty in washington that both the french and british governments gave extra pay to their pilots the insistence on the part of the general staff that pilots did not run unusual risks met with unanimous disapproval it was only one of the results of that lack of expert knowledge of military aeronautics and lack of sympathy with the difficulties of aviation which pervaded the general staff during 1917-18. to 18. Speaking of risks, it may be of interest to refer to my own experience. My first instructor in an army machine was Captain Roger Janus, a pilot of long experience, great skill, and remarkable devotion to duty. He was killed while in the course of a practice combat near Field 8 at Issoudun. His machine caught fire in the air, probably from a gasoline tank which had become leaky, owing to the strains and contortions of combat flying. Captain Janus was too experienced a pilot to have taken up an imperfect machine, and no one could have foreseen the accident which happened to him after he had been combating with an instructor about three-quarters of an hour. My second instructor was Captain H. Taylor, who was the officer in charge of flying at Mineola when I went there to take my reserve military aviator tests in August 1917. He was a very experienced pilot and devoted to his work. I had not been flying at Mineola but a few days when he was killed while giving a lesson in spiralling to the pupil whose turn immediately preceded mine. The student was seriously injured, but eventually recovered. It was an extremely hot day, and I have since had occasion to notice that accidents in the air always increase during extremely hot weather, possibly as the result of fainting or vertigo. My third instructor at Issoudun was more fortunate, and lived to achieve a brilliant record at the front. My fourth instructor, Lieutenant Ott, was killed at Issoudun while endeavouring to bring his ship out of a dangerous position into which it had been thrown by an inexperienced student in the back seat. My fifth instructor, and the one who succeeded by his patience and skill in giving me a sense of confidence in the tricky Nieuport 23, was Lieutenant Blanchard. He was an unusually painstaking pilot a faithful instructor and a very competent aviator. After several months of teaching at Issoudun, he was sent to the gunnery school at Saint-Jean-de-Montes to perfect himself in actual firing before going to the front, but was killed by being thrown from his machine when diving at a target. When it is remembered that these men who gave their lives at flying schools were not beginners or poorly trained pilots, but experts in the art of flying, it seems incredible that anyone should begrudge the pilot his additional pay. A recent article in the Philadelphia Press calls attention to the very heavy loss suffered by the French air service. During the four years of the war, nearly 2,000 French pilots and observers were killed at the front. 1,500 disappeared, which means that some were killed, others were taken prisoners. Nearly 3,000 were injured, and about 2,000 were killed while on duty at school or depot in the zone of the interior. 
On the day of the armistice, the French Air Service had about 13,000 available pilots and observers. The very heavy proportion of losses compared to the size of the service is self-evident. It is an interesting commentary on human nature and on the utility of a combined civilian and military control over the army that the members of the Senate Military Affairs Committee, none of whom were flyers, should have been more ready to sympathize with the army aviator than were the officers of the general staff not only in rank and pay but also in such minor matters as spurs and blouses was the general staff's attitude shown as has already been stated in a previous chapter during the first year of our participation in the war the general staff insisted that an aviator who wore boots must wear spurs as well as wings at last the humour of it struck somebody, and aviators were allowed for a few months to wear boots without spurs. This was too much for the old cavalry officers, however, and in December 1918 the former rule was restored. As regards the blouse, we made many efforts to be allowed to wear a coat made with a collar that was safe and comfortable like those worn by allied aviators our naval aviators were successful we had not been at war more than three months before they secured the authorization of an attractive and sensible uniform with roll collar and appropriate insignia a uniform several times referred to by foreign officers in my presence as the smartest uniform in europe and one that undoubtedly gave the naval flyers additional prestige and improved morale notwithstanding the promptness of the navy in realizing that the aviators could not be expected to be either comfortable or efficient in a high standing collar the general staff of the army absolutely refused to permit the military aviator any deviation from the snug fitting neckband which helps the infantry soldier to stand stiffly erect on parade our uniform was designed for the kind of fighting that the American army had been accustomed to on the Mexican border and in the Philippines. Nothing could be more effective for that sort of fighting than our service hat and the thick flannel shirt. In France, however, it was necessary to fight in a blouse or coat, although this had been designed chiefly to be worn on parade. Even the old conservative staff officers could see that it was impossible to wear our service hat under the very necessary steel helmet. So the sacred hat was soon given up in favour of a cloth cap. Why a more comfortable form of blouse was not provided for the ground troops, I do not know. That it was denied to aviators was undoubtedly due to the fact that no members of the general staff had ever had to fly over the lines or in a crowded area near a big flying school, where it is necessary to turn the head from right to left, back and forth continually, in order to make sure of avoiding other airplanes, either enemy or friendly. At school we permitted our students to wear sweaters under their flying equipment instead of the regulation blouses. Even so, however, they were frequently subjected to serious reprimands if they were seen by old regular officers, improperly clad and contrary to regulation. At the front, however, it was different. 
the aviator who went over the lines ran a very good chance of being taken prisoner in case he was forced to land because of engine failure or being shot down naturally it was necessary for him always to be clad in the uniform of an officer some squadron commanders permitted their pilots to wear non-regulation blouses patterned on the english model with roll collars this caused censure and complaint on the part of those whose duty it was to uphold the regulations and to see that they were carried out other pilots who crossed the lines wearing the regulation collars frequently came back with necks cut and bleeding owing to the necessity of turning the head incessantly in order to avoid surprise attacks of enemy airplanes this may seem to be a small matter and hardly deserving of so much attention the truth is however that it made the young pilot feel that the army took no interest in his welfare the general staff failed to recognize that this supremely voluntary service from which it was so easy to escape if one felt so inclined required plenty of encouragement and the zest that comes from intense pride in an organization it was well known that the british and french armies treated their aviators with the utmost consideration permitting them great freedom and recognizing that the extremely hazardous and nerve-wracking nature of the daily service over the lines required a different form of discipline the additional fact that our own navy had acknowledged the special uniform requirements of an aviator made it all the harder to understand why the general staff refused to give us more consideration it is worthy of note that major general brewster the inspector general of the american expeditionary forces in may nineteen eighteen personally recommended a change in the uniform regulation in order to give the aviators what he felt they justly deserved his recommendation however produced no result it was frequently felt by the officers of the american air service that the army as a whole particularly some of the older staff officers were so jealous of the extraordinary interest which congress and the american people took in aviation and were so resentful of the unfortunate amount of advertising which the air service received through no fault of its own that they took satisfaction in declining any requests for special consideration the fact remains that the air service composed largely as it must be of high-strung venturesome boys willing to take unheard-of risks in their enthusiasm and facing extraordinary dangers even in the ordinary course of their daily drill and training needs intelligent sympathetic consideration the general staff must prepare for the future by requiring its officers to fly or by including among its members a relatively large number of pilots and observers so that there will be just as sympathetic an understanding of the air service as there is of the cavalry or field artillery there will be no excuse for not having on the general staff men like colonel walter g kilner who received the distinguished service medal for his remarkable work in organizing aviation instruction in france knows the whole problem of military aeronautics from top to bottom and who did more towards the success of aviation in france than any other officer in the american expeditionary forces furthermore there should be men on the staff like colonel robert m danford now commandant of cadets at west point 
who believes that all artillery officers should become aerial observers even if they cannot learn to fly themselves in the past all officers of field artillery were mounted officers and wore spurs in the future they should all be able to wear the wings of a pilot or an observer the eyes of the artillery must be under the control of the same general officer who directs the activities of the guns themselves in other words it would be folly to divorce military aeronautics from the army our military aviators must be trained by army officers who have themselves learned the peculiar difficulties of this new branch of the service plans for military airplanes will undoubtedly be presented by members of the arm that is going to use them but the actual manufacture and production of airplanes need not be under military control any more than the manufacture of arms and ammunition as carried on at such great plants as winchesters and colts personally i agree with such authorities as admiral david beatty that an independent air force is a mistake and that the army and the navy should each control the training and the operation of their own aviators the aircraft journal for november nineteen nineteen contained the following digest of an interview with admiral beatty which is most significant admiral beatty stated that he had supported the creation of the royal air forces for the reason that at the time it was the only way he could get the personnel and material he needed in the grand fleet he thought that a young and new service would be keen to make a reputation with the two older services navy and army by being particular not to let anything interfere with naval and army aviation needs in that way with production centralized they would get by the troubles they were having for supply of material but that was his idea during the war now that the war is over he does not consider the raf organization a proper one as far as it applies to the navy and army the phrase navy and army and air is an attractive one but it isn't sound in each profession navy and army and there should be no independent fighting force in the air he considered that the value of the independent air force for england was somewhat overrated results of the war showed that damage by bombing both physical and moral was not as great as expected for example in spite of the tons of high explosives dropped on bruges there was surprisingly little damage the moral effect of the bombing wears off for the population gradually becomes accustomed to it referring to the organization requirements of the united states he said that with our geographical position there was no excuse at all for an independent fighting air force but he does believe that a separate air organization to control all aviation production is desirable for england or any other country end of section nineteen